Welcome to All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light driving scientific innovation in the 21st century. I'm Joel Williams, Associate Editor at Photonics Media. Join us as we explore the latest trends in optics, lasers, microscopy, and spectroscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape, brought to you by Photonics Media. Since its introduction in 1994, few photonic devices have better helped subvert the status quo than the quantum cascade laser. From its high power output, ability to operate at room temperature, and rapid response time, the QCL is a vital component of infrared spectroscopic systems. In the terahertz band, the QCL is crucial for metrology and precision test and measurement. Additionally, quantum cascade sensors and detectors support a variety of commercial, industrial, defense, and environmental applications. Today on All Things Photonics, we speak with Dr. Jerome Feist, co-inventor of the QCL. At Bell Labs, Dr. Feist was a member of the team led by Federico Capasso that introduced the laser. Today, Dr. Feist heads the Quantum Optoelectronics Group at ETH Zurich, where his work continues to span the infrared. In the early 90s, as Dr. Feist recalls, before this new semiconductor laser became a reality, it toiled as a proposal. Before it supported its myriad applications, the QCL was in search of just one. In many ways, the quest to design such a fundamentally different type of laser paled in comparison to articulating the rationale behind it. In telling the story of the QCL, Dr. Feist introduces a Hall of Fame cast of scientific minds, among them Federico Capasso, as well as Alfred Cho, Serge Laurie, and F.K. Reinhardt. The development of the QCL may not have been quick, but it certainly was interesting. It remains so a quarter century later. Join us for the season finale of All Things Photonics, as for one episode only, we become All Things Quantum Cascade Lasers. Speaking with Dr. Jerome Feist, who is a co-inventor of the Quantum Cascade Laser, and, and I want to start in the formative year, or years even, of the QCL. Let's take us back here to the early 1990s, and what were the primary motivations at that time that um, sort of served as the impetus for the development of a semiconductor laser that was capable of emitting in the mid to far infrared band? I think, uh, and we should really remember that because uh, it's absolutely not obvious from today, but it was really scientific curiosity. And I think really uh, this was definitely an example, at least for me, on when I was uh, you know, proposed by Peter Capasso uh, on working on, on that project, I thought, wow, that's a, that's a great project because, of course, it was such a different way of trying to make a laser. But I think neither of us had really a clear vision that it could become a useful product in the end. It was really um, also given by the, you know, what we were ready to do to get that laser to operate, that means go to room temperature, even apply magnetic field, you know. Uh, for us, the primary driver was to really uh, look at the fundamental physics behind it and try to see whether such a laser could at all be realized. In terms of the applications, what were some of the applications that maybe you had in mind or you and Dr. Capasso had in mind for such a laser? Well, I, I, there I can bring a, a personal anecdote because after two years of working, I had still no results and I uh, had just a proposal. And internally I applied to a job inside the labs and I was rehearsing uh, my talk where I would sort of show what I've been trying to do 
And I was asked by Sir Lurie, uh, who was researcher there and became as it owned career afterwards. He said, well, Jerome, you should motivate why you're trying to do that. And I thought, oh my God, he's right. I should <laughs> If I were able to make that laser, what could I do with it? And I tried to come up with some features and I was quite happy because then afterwards I realized I was not too far off the mark. So there's a couple of features that I, I think I predicted at that time, which were right, but they had to be asked from someone else <laughs> to know what, you know what we could do with this. So it's worth mentioning this This is happening here. QCL was developed in 1994. You're at Bell Labs. You're working with the Federico Capasso Research Group, but you're it's quite a group, right? You're working with Reinhardt and Cho uh, and these great scientific minds, yourself included. Can you sort of bring us inside those discussions, those conversations? Because I have to think, just knowing some of the personalities involved, that it must have been a pretty fascinating, brilliant time. Yeah, it was an absolutely awesome time. I was lucky to to actually make my PhD in Lausanne with uh, Franz Karl Reinhardt, you know, who had spent 20 years in Bell Labs. And there was something with him that clicked immediately in terms of, you know, his willingness to address new problems in terms of uh, being really fearless in some way in terms of trying new things. And he was quite in Lausanne, which at that time, EPFL was a bit more of a provincial you know, university than it is now. Uh, he sort of was really quite a character. And for me, it was, of course, quite an impression as a student to have him as, as, as an advisor. Uh, and then when, of course, I went to Bell Labs, I realized, oh, but he's a perfect Bell Labs product. That explains it all. Um, and of course, uh, working with those giants was really a, an amazing experience for me. Uh, working with Al Cho, with Federico Capasso, you know, uh, Chuck Henry. Uh, of course, we didn't work closely, but those were people who were around, who you could talk to, and, and you know, where all had this a really long track record of bringing new ideas and also this very deep insights. So that was really an amazing environment to work. Um, you know, we were all in a sense a bit on our own project, but of course, discussing with others is, is an extremely important aspect. To understand the quantum cascade laser and its industry significance, it helps to understand how the device operates and what sets it apart from other lasers in its class and from diode lasers. We asked Dr. Feist this very question. His answer ventured into material science and the development of a room temperature semiconductor that today is commonplace as a substrate and laser medium and as a photodetector and a transistor material. I think it's important to maybe take a step back too, just for our audience. And this is, forgive me for asking the developer of the quantum cascade laser how it operates, but I'm going to do it. Just for our audience, can you uh, tell us just in terms of operation, um, what's really happening with the quantum cascade laser that distinguishes it from a diode laser, but even other semiconductor lasers? So the big difference really in a quantum cascade laser is that typically the first laser with a ruby laser, and the ruby laser looks red. So it emits red light because it basically the crystal will emit in this frequency range. And because chemically, uh, the impurities that are there will emit at that uh, frequency. And it is still quite true for the semiconductor laser. In a semiconductor laser, you bring electrons on the production band, holes in the valence band, they recombine, and the color of the, of the light that comes out, the frequency of it, depends on the chemical nature mostly of that 
material. And of course, it has been a big driver of research to develop materials that would emit well, for example, in historically in the 1.55 micro wavelength, where we people knew that the fibers could be developed with very low losses. It was a big push to develop materials that would emit at that frequency. And that, of course, led to the indium gallium arsenide uh, materials that we're still using now. The big difference with a quantum cascade laser is the quantum cascade laser also uses semiconductors, but it uses them in a different way. In the mean that we confine the electrons in a very thin slab. And as exactly in the same way as you would have in a guitar, where the length of the, you know, the string determines the height of the tone of that, of what the chord oscillates, then the length of the quantum well or the the thickness of that little thin, uh, very thin layer of semiconductor determines what the color of the light that will be then emitted. And therefore, what you can do is now for the first time is take material system. Uh, in our case, it had been to be indium gallium arsenide, aluminium gallium arsenide. And with that simple material system, by just changing the dimensions and changing the thicknesses of the well, you can emit now light in over very wide frequency range, basically covering the whole terahertz to the whole mid-infrared. And that was really the big difference. The other thing is, of course, that it, as its name indicates, it's a cascade, meaning that you basically have an electron that, if you want, really can follow that analogy that is sort of dribbling down a staircase and that each stair it emits a photon. So a single electron can actually emit much more than one photon. And that, of course, is very interesting if you're doing these lasers uh, in the mid-infrared where the photon energy itself is rather small. So it's good that you can emit a lot of them. So that raises a couple interesting points. One of them that comes to mind, you, you talk about the, the use of the word cascade. Naming this laser was, was no small task, and it's a, sort of an interesting name. Can you tell us the story of how uh, the team decided that quantum cascade laser was the appropriate name yeah. for the device? There, I have to give back to Caesar what it <laughs> <laughs> That was definitely Federico Capasso's. Okay, yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, he came up with a name, and, uh, you know, it was definitely a very good, very good name, very good idea. Yeah. Of course, we didn't need much discussion after that, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can imagine. Uh, and the other thing that raises is, so it's not, I don't want to call it a straightforward platform, a materials platform, the, the indium gallium arsenide. But there are a number of considerations, right, when you're developing any sort of laser technology. You're thinking of the gain medium and, and the pulse duration, certainly the strength of the laser. What were some of the most difficult challenges to overcome um, in, in not just developing the device, but then really optimizing it to be published um, in a paper? Well, I think, of course, there is one challenge that really we were very, very grateful uh, for the material that was grown by Alcho. Uh, because he had developed this indium gallium arsenide, aluminium indium arsenide, you know, heterostructure material grown on indium phosphide. And, you know, having that very high quality material was, I mean, really at, at the heart. Uh, you know, you need to make such a laser, you need actually a lot of things to fit together. And of course, you need the good idea, the good design, but you also need the, the right material to do it. And there, of course, that was one very, very important ingredient. Uh, that we knew from the beginning that were, and that in a sense was also one of the assets we knew we had uh, to be able to collaborate with Alcho and get his material to try that. And also not only try that once, because 
you know, the, the project developed for a long time along blind alleys. We sort of were trying to go in the wrong direction or simply the direction that didn't work. Uh, he kept growing us material and didn't tire out at some point <laughs> saying, oh, Jerome, please try something else because I'm tired to grow materials that doesn't lead to anything. And he had the persistence of, you know, I barely dare to show him the structure that actually <laughs> because it was very complicated <laughs> and very thick. And so, but he still grew it. And that, of course, to his entire credit. And so, I mean, in, that was one, of course, of the important thing. Yeah, that sounds like like Dr. Cho, and we've talked about Capasso and Reinhardt, you yourself. Uh, how have these relationships influenced your later work? You know, this is 1993, 4, 5. Here we are uh, nearing 2022. I have to think that the influences from these luminaries has been quite profound. Yes, totally. This is, as I said, I mean, it has, they were really also carrying, expressing, if you want, the, the spirit of Bell Labs, which... You know, of course, as we know, Bell Labs has does not exist as it, you know, in the way at least it used to be. That's the bad news. The good news is that a lot of that spirit has now been transferred to universities or other research uh, entities. And really that spirit, uh, which I like so much because of, in a sense, also of my personal scientific choices and likeness, is this intimate relationship between fundamental and applied research and applications. And that has been for me extremely important beyond just the technical, of course, the technical brilliance of those people uh, and also their uh, mentorship and their way of showing how things have to be done. We're speaking with Dr. Jerome Feist from the Quantum Optoelectronics Group at ETH Zurich here on All Things Photonics today. Our conversation about the development of the quantum cascade laser and other subjects as well. Um, one of the great things about laser technology is that it's evolving, um, not always in a linear way, but always in a fascinating way. And that's certainly the case with quantum cascade lasers. Um, and this will segue into a discussion on recent work. But I, I first want to hear from you. Um, why has it been so difficult to achieve ultra short pulses from quantum cascade lasers? Uh, and from that, what applications could an ultra short pulse QCL support? I mean, the difficulty in generating ultra-short pulses in quantum cascade laser, in a way, is very tightly related to the difficulty it was to make the laser in the first place, is the fact that the upper state lifetime is extremely short. And I really can fairly say that at the time, many people thought with such a short lifetime, you simply will never make a laser. I mean, it's completely... Or if you can make it, it's going to be such a ridiculous laser that is even <laughs> useful for anything. And of course, it's easy to look back and say, well, they were wrong. But obviously, of course, we benefited from the fact that other things went very well in that material system, such that we actually still could do the laser. But now, if I go back, move forward, and indeed uh, look at the development and, and making very short pulses from quantum cascade laser, there indeed we are again in a situation where the common knowledge tells you, well, you have to start with a material system that has a very long upper state lifetime in such a way that it can store the energy between two pulses, because this is the way a mode-locked laser work. You have, you know, again, medium where you're storing energy, and then suddenly you have a short pulse that basically converts this energy, which is stored in two-level systems, into a, a very strong pulse of light. Now, what we are effectively doing now is... Uh, we are going around that problem in a very 
similar way as um, you know, the Church post amplification, which was granted the Nobel Prize recently, in the fact that even in the kind of normal material systems, uh, trying once you try to scale the power of that pulse above a certain amount, you run into problems that you know you're destroying effectively your material by the strength of the pulse which is running into it, and that's why amplifying very you know high energy pulses means usually stretching it first such that it's not a very short pulse so that you dilute if you want the energy, and then you recompress it afterwards. And now in the quantum cascade laser, what we do effectively is the same thing. We actually have extremely long stretched pulses inside the cavity. And there we benefit from the fact that the quantum cascade laser has really the possibility of emitting, because also of this cascaded nature, very high powers. So it can, for a semiconductor laser, it can ex, you know, extract many watts in continuous wave, which is really a large amount. And now what we do is we simply take that and you know, we simply push that stretched pulse technique to a maximum because now the pulse is as long as the cavity itself, if you want, and we simply recompress it afterwards. So we take advantage of the fact that the laser can emit large amount of power, and now we recompress that power into, into a very short pulse. Coinciding with our interview with Dr. Feist, a research group at ETH Zurich, in fact operating in the Feist Research Group, recently became the first to demonstrate direct femtosecond pulse emission from a QCL in the mid-infrared range. The demonstration opens the possibility for novel applications of ultra-short laser pulses, and as Dr. Feist says, rises above the bottleneck that is formed by the rapid dynamics of the active medium inside the QCL's laser cavity. Traditionally, these fast dynamics of the active medium in the cavity prevent the buildup of high-power pulses. Because QCLs are compact light sources and can be integrated into chips, the advance lays the groundwork to access ultra-fast dynamics across the molecular fingerprint region. The high-peak powers should enable a new class of experiments exploring nonlinear effects, which could in turn lead to previously unattainable capabilities for precision measurements. More than this, however, is the current focus of Dr. Feist's own work. This centers around dual-comb spectroscopy and a whole host of dual-comb experiments. Using so-called dual-comb spectroscopy, you can do uh, spectroscopy with really a resolution in a time which is unbeatable by any other technique. And now, if you want, what we spend many years is trying to understand better, of course, how do you what first of all how is this quantum cascade laser now behaving this way why is it behaving this way and how can you control that state uh, and in a way um, the fact that we could recompress the pulses now really is coming from that groundwork of understanding how to control and how to generate those combs because those combs turned out to be not the product of sharp pulses as they would do normally but they are exactly the product of more like a frequency modulated output. So it's, in a sense, the quantum cascade laser has its instantaneous frequency, which is sweeping across its bandwidth uh, periodically. And now this, of course, can generate, is a comb, but it is not the comb that people usually think about when they, they talk about combs. And so what we did is to recompress that state into single pulses by modifying the phases. Broadband spectroscopy and semiconductor lasers are not immediately compatible. They are, however, critically important to the ability to design increasingly portable test and measurement instruments. 
The key is to not sacrifice speed for resolution or resolution for speed. In this final portion of our interview, we revisit a quote from Dr. Feist that carries us into a conversation about commercialization and product development. And in the dual group experiments, uh, you can shoot for speed or resolution or both in a way. You, you know, those are the two aspects you can, you can shoot for. And uh, I think for us, the ability to compress the pulse means that we have the prospect now of broadening them using nonlinear optics and therefore having this combination of very broadband cones uh, and doing very broadband spectroscopy with semiconductor lasers. And that's, of course, very important because in the end, the semiconductor laser is small uh, and therefore it allows you to integrate the whole spectrometer that would be standing in a full table now into a small gadget. Uh, which you could, in, I mean, in, I still have this hope that we could incorporate that into a portable instrument to do, you know, to measure some parameters uh, in, in medical diagnostics or in, in other applications. So I think it, it brings this prospect of volume application to something which is now, of course, only lab research. You were interviewed by Zurich Instruments not long ago, and you said something that I find particularly interesting, and I'll, I'll quote here. I feel half a physicist and half an engineer. If only one half of me is involved, I'm not happy. Even doing fundamental or even doing very fundamental research, I always have in mind what can come out uh, for practical applications. Really a, a pretty strong quote. Today, how do you apply the engineer's attitude to your work with spectroscopy or, or metamaterials and frequency combs? Um, is there an interest in, in product development and commercialization stems from your work in these areas? Well, we actually on the on this Kiwana Cascade laser combs, we already have a spin-off that not only was there but was already acquired now by a co big company. So it's it's been now they're selling uh, spectrometer based on quantum cascade lasers. They of course do not take advantage of this pulse and this broadening. So I but I expect they could become interested in in, in developing that technique. So in a sense, to be honest, this development in comb was for me also very much driven by the prospect of applications. Uh, of course, the work uh, on the vacuum fluctuations is much more related to my fundamental aspects. Uh, and there, as it's very often the case in fundamental research, the application are usually not directly in the fundamental result that you have, but they are by using and recycling some of the techniques that you need to develop to access those fundamental properties and use them for other applications, much more practical applications. And that's, in a sense, for us, for example, uh, when we try to probe the correlation of vacuum field fluctuations uh, you know, outside the light cone, which is really testing, if you want, relativity and, and causality and quantum physics, obviously, I don't have kind of in mind an application <laughs> yeah. like that directly. But, you know, this whole technology that we needed to develop to have extremely high sensitivity terahertz sensors, that obviously, I think, could be useful in the future application. That concludes this week's episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to our news editor, Jake Saltzman, as well as to this week's sponsors. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com. Most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pitch us ideas, and let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthingsphotonics.com. 
All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on our website, photonics.com.